It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So anyone that uh, knows World War I knows that there's certain things about World War I that sort of are historic, and that when you have your short list of thoughts and you think of World War I, you think of trench warfare, that's usually one of the things. And sometimes, depending on how much you hang around World War I, you think of tanks. And the tank is a very, very fascinating dimension of World War I. And you know, I've been trying to figure out throughout this entire uh, series how I'm going to weave the tank in, because it's not an event per se, right, is it? And uh, yet it's such a critical part of World War I, and then that's still going to be in, in existence today. And so it's always fascinating to see how war creates invention. As the, the famous phrase oftentimes says, uh, necessity is the mother of invention, and war creates necessities. And so it's really fascinating to, to see all the different ideas that are being thrown out on the table. I mean, it's re- one of my favorite things is the espionage side of World War I and then the invention side. Not just of World War I, but of any war. And the Civil War, for instance, one of the most intriguing things is to see how the different sides are trying to invent things to overcome the obstacles that the other uh, side is creating. And of course, in war, what you want to do is create an, an obstacle for the opponent or a challenge for the opponent that they don't have a defense for. And that's, of course, how you win. And so this is going to be about the tank. Sorry to give that away. You know, it seems like I should have held that back. I actually had a whole model of teaching this that was going to hold that back and then reveal it as I went. But I just thought, you know what? I might as well just wear it on my sleeve. I don't think it's going to hurt you guys to just know that that's where we're going. So part 32, codename tank. You see, tank is a codename. It was supposed to be so the Germans would not figure out what they were doing. If they're going to see or their spy network were going to pick up on this and they were going to hear that these were tanks. Well, that was the term for how you would haul water or fuel. It was in a tank. So this was going to be some kind of hauling device. And that was how they were misleading the Germans into thinking that they were creating a water tank uh, that was going to bring water to the front. So what a great idea. And so that's where the term tank even comes from. So code name, tank. I like that title, by the way. You know, I don't always like the title, but I really like this one. So uh, just a little history on the tank. You know, I can only spend so much time, but there's a lot. This is, this is a very fascinating study in and of itself. And really to get into it, you need to study science fiction literature in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, because that's actually, strangely, where it comes from. And so H.G. Wells, who is going to write multiple science fiction works like The War of the Worlds, The Time Machine, he's also going to write a short story called The Land Ironclads. So if you remember the Civil War, we had our ironclad, uh, you know, there was like a ship at sea that was like a tank, if you want to say it that way. Well, now H.G. Wells is going to take that idea and move it out of the water and put it on some kind of track system. And that actually becomes a ship on the land. And that's the idea of where a tank comes from. It's a ship on the land. And so it should be no shock to you 
that it's actually the admiralty, the British admiralty in Winston Churchill, uh, that is going to inaugurate the notion of saying, okay, since this is a ship, just because it's on the land, it's a ship. I mean, we're the Navy, right? And so the Navy is going to be the one that invents the tank. Isn't that interesting? Because it's a land ship. I mean, you guys knew that, right? It's a land ship. It's just so intriguing to me. So this is where it starts, the land ironclads. The book is written in, or the short story, is written by H.G. Wells in 1903. Winston Churchill is going to testify. I'm not sure what it was on, what the, what the uh, situation was, but he's going to testify before Parliament in 1925, I think, to say that the origins of the tank were H.G. Wells's book, or short story, uh, The Land Ironclads. So I, I looked for an original cover of it, but they don't have one because it was originally released in and through a, like a newspaper or a magazine uh, periodical. So unfortunately, I couldn't find a good one. I found a whole bunch of bad covers uh, for it. And then this is the, the newest one, and it, it doesn't really quite do it justice. But here's just a, a very quick uh, summary of it. And just think about this. In light of everything you know about World War I so far, this is extremely fascinating. So here's the summary uh, from the online Tank Museum. Isn't that a fun uh, website? In the story, The Land Ironclads, two sides find themselves locked in a trench warfare stalemate, which is broken with the use of the land ironclads, 30-meter-long, heavily armed and armored behemoths powered by steam. So what an interesting way to power a land ship is by steam, but since that's how ships were being powered. And see, this is right at the point where oil is going to be converted into fuel sources or petrol, and you're going to see the combustion engine being developed. But that's just right at the same time. So H.G. Wells is working. He's all, in all of his inventions, he sometimes surmises uh, new things that haven't been invented, but he, didn't, he wasn't surmising fuel and combustion engines. So he's thinking, how, how's this going to work on land? So it was steam-powered. And uh, these massively uh, long, 30-meter-long, heavily armed and armored behemoths. So that's what his story is about. It's about trench warfare, a stalemate, which is, ironically, exactly what's going to happen in World War I. And then that the breakthrough is going to come because of these land ironclads. So that's odd. Uh, here it is so many years before the war, and yet he's going to see something and actually describe it in vivid detail. So these are actually some pictures. My guess is that they were associated with the original publication of it. And so you can see the, uh, the land ironclads in the distance uh, coming. And so these are the behemoths that are, you see the steam, you know, the, the smoke coming from the engine. Yeah, that's, that's the original idea. So at this time in 1903, uh, someone invented, I, sorry, I don't remember the guy's name, but he invented what was called the ped rail. And this is like a wheel, but the wheel each uh, has a whole bunch of different feet on it, like elephant feet. And they have sort of a spring system to it. So this wheel can literally adapt to anything that it's going over. So that was the original concept that H.G. Wells had. But at the same time, they're going to start to invent and create more of a chain traction technology, which of course, for those of you that know the tank, is going to be used instead. But this is like, he's literally inventing how could this behemoth work on land, which is going to go over land the way a ship goes over the sea. 
In other words, nothing can stop it. It just moves over anything. And I actually don't think this was from H.G. Wells, uh, uh, his, his book on the land ironclads, but I think this was a French invention, which was called the war car. It didn't say that. Uh, it, it was associated with his, but since I can't read the original articles and see what was associated with that, I don't think this is what H.G. Wells was inventing, but I think they grouped it with it because there was this French designer which was creating something called the war car. Isn't that cool? The war car. I almost called this thing the war car, but then that would be misleading because it isn't the war car. It's the land ship. So there was a big problem, and you guys are fairly uh, acquainted, well acquainted with the problem that we have in World War I, even though you don't realize it maybe yet. You, you do. You know that it's barbed wire. What a strange problem to have. You see, if you're going to break this stalemate, you need to get out of your trench and somehow get into their trench and beat them up and get them to throw up the white flag. You need to either do that or you need to break through their line and capture their capital city and have them cry for mercy, right? It's like, how are you gonna get this war over with? You somehow have to solve this stalemate. But the problem with solving the stalemate is every time you go on the offensive, you have this barbed wire you have to get through. And so all the scientists are trying to solve the riddle of barbed wire, of all things, barbed wire. Now, I've given you guys already a history. I almost had a long history of barbed wire, and I, I realized it's actually not that interesting. <laughs> it was, but the Homestead Act, because of Lincoln's Homestead Act, where after the Civil War, you can actually go into uh, the, the western part of the United States and state claim to 160 acres, right? And there's certain factors that cause you to be able to get this land and put it in your name, you have to be there for a certain amount of time. However, property rights suddenly become a very, very important thing. And how are you going to define your territory from that guy's over there? He seems to be on your territory. He's bringing his cattle onto your territory. And so they, to build a fence out of wood was extremely expensive if you're trying to cover 160 acres or more. And so as a result, you have all these farmers that are laboring to come up with some solution to this. So it is funny, necessity is the mother of invention. And in the West, they're going to, for agricultural and uh, you know, purposes of keeping cattle uh, in, they're going to create uh, something that solves the riddle. Because when they first start with wire fences, they realize that a 2,000 pound uh, bull just sort of runs right over it. You know, He likes the grass on the other side of that wire fence and he just plows through it. That didn't seem to work. And then people were concerned because this one guy stuck barbs on them. It's like, well, how rude is that? I'm going to get my, you know, get my bull stuck in that. What they found is that, yes, that can happen. However, what typically happened is it caused the cattle to steer away from it. Whether they brush up against it, like, oh, I don't like that. And so it actually starts to work. And then all the cattle begin to be trained. They're like, huh, what? <laughs> Moo, don't like that. And so it actually works, and it becomes this invention that is literally going to make you know, the, uh, the wealthy wealthier in, in America, because this is going to be big business, is selling barbed wire. I mean, if you think of almost every single property in Texas is going to be covered and surrounded with barbed wire, that's a lot of barbed wire that is being produced. So this is the big problem, getting past the barbed wire. Now, you probably already can finish the sentence of how that's going to be solved because I have given away that spoiler earlier in the series. 
Some of you still may be in a fog bank, I'm not sure, and so I'd like to keep you there just for a little longer. But if you were going to try and solve the problem of barbed wire, it really is a unique challenge. Because you can't just take out your gun, your machine gun, you know, which is a powerful instrument, and aim it at the barbed wire, and it's like, Phew! and then you like shoot it through, it's like, yeah. And then it all just goes, Poof. it just doesn't work that way. This stuff, seemed, no matter what they tried to do, it just kept standing there. And say you break through it, well, then it goes from here to like that. And guess what? That doesn't make it any easier. Now it's just like still there. How do you eviscerate it? <laughs> How do you just totally remove it? Because even if it falls in the ground, now you have a whole bunch of barbs that now you need to cross over. It's like running over landmines. And so how do you get rid of this stuff? It's a really interesting thought process to go through. And this is what both sides are trying to problem solve. So I thought this was a pretty cool picture. Uh, and it's uh, manufactured barbed wire, piles of galvanized military barbed wire in Pittsburgh Steel Company uh, in Pennsylvania. Isn't that just an interesting picture? Uh, it's like, I, I don't know what barbed wire, the process of building barbed wire looks like, but that's just intriguing to me. I wouldn't want to be lugging that stuff around. So when you think of barbed wire in World War I, it's easy to just think of a little fence, you know, like, like we picture. It's like, oh yeah, so they're going to stick up some barbed wire. It's just like, well, I just had to get over one. So what if I were to set a platform up, like the first guy goes out and he's carrying some kind of platform, maybe like one of those trampoline types of things, and then everyone around afterwards jumps on the trampoline and gets over this little fence. It's like, hey, you know, that's a pretty good idea. However, that's not just a little fence. That's layers and layers and layers. It's a nest. It's a web. And it's very smart. You have to admit, it's like, okay, now how do I get past that? My little jump routine isn't quite working. So this is just giving you some mental pictures of how the barbed wire looked in World War I. And you could recognize why that wouldn't be very enjoyable to try and get through. If you were running towards it, you could recognize that that would be a little bit of a hazard. Uh, you're that close to the enemy, and if you could get to them, you could take them out. Instead, they have their machine gun aimed at you, and you're stuck behind that. So the many solutions to barbed wire. Now, uh, in the last episode, I was talking about the Battle of the Somme, and I was talking about the British military was convinced that they could solve the barbed wire problem with three million artillery shells in one week. And, you know, if you're going to, you know, put down three million bombs in one area, wouldn't you presume that it's going to disintegrate, eviscerate anything that could possibly still be there? There's no way that that's going to still be there. And yet what they found is that after three million uh, artillery shells going off, the barbed wire was still there. I mean, that is astounding. I think there was no grid to compute that for these military generals. These are smart men. And they're, it's the scientists that are coming up with this, this figuring to say, yes, this will devastate it. But it was still there. So they invented something called wire-cutting fuses. Now, there's other names for these, but typically when an artillery shell would go off, it would create a crater. So most of its impact was down instead of sideways. And so what they did is they created a different sort of bomb that would land and it would actually hit more surface level, which would actually decimate more wire uh, in the process. And so that started to prove effective, but it's 
uh, was still in its development at this time. The human bridge was another thing that they tried, if you could imagine this, and that is that they would lay men on top of the barbed wire, and then they would walk over them. And I guess it's sort of like living, you know, laying on a bed of nails, I guess. If you do it just right, you can actually create, but most of the injury was not created by the barbed wire when they did this. It was by men stumbling, falling, and landing on them uh, while they were doing it. I would not necessarily recommend that that's probably the best way to solve the problem, but when you're desperate, you'll do anything. And the human bridge was one of the things that they tried to be able to get past the barbed wire. I, I'm not sure how you would feel about being one of the ones that got to lay down on the barbed wire with uh, it and all of the troops running over you with their heavy equipment on, being shot at uh, the whole while. <clears throat> but that was another solution. So what is going to form in February of 1915 is what I'm going to call the Secret Landships Committee. I'm extremely intrigued by the Secret Landships Committee. And this falls into that territory of World War I, which is, has a sort of a spy network thing to it. And this is, it, it's not truly a, a, you know, an espionage thing, it's, but it is. It, it's Winston Churchill, who is the minister of the Navy. He's head over all the British Navy. And he is going to recognize that something has to be addressed here. And he's an inventor. Uh, if in World War II, you're going to see an invention that, uh, that Winston Churchill is going to head up, and that is going to be the device that enables uh, soldiers to get from water to land without having to get into a little rowboat to make their way over. And that is going to be a device that he is going to oversee, map out, sketch out. And so the Battle of Normandy or uh, the... Uh, the Normandy operation is going to be done based off of those water-to-land vehicles, uh, those ships. And it's an incredible invention. And so if you've ever seen those movies of the devices that come over and soldiers are in them, and then at the very last minute, the gate opens and the soldiers run out, yeah, that's the Winston Churchill invention, right? So this is, he's, he's an inventive guy, right? He's not the one that always knows how to build it, but he has ideas. He's a problem solver. He's like, let's get this done. So he calls a secret committee together. He doesn't tell the war minister, he doesn't tell other members of parliament that he's doing this because he knows that they'll be against the idea. And he, he recognizes that if something is going to be developed that Sir John French at this time is the one who's the commander-in-chief of the British forces and he does not want to, uh, to build what is going to be called the tank. He thinks it's ridiculous, it's ludicrous, it's, it's science fiction. And so Winston Churchill is going to put together this committee. So I have sort of a picture, a backroom picture of our committee. Now there is one more guy, I couldn't find a picture uh, for him. Uh, something like Thomas Heatherwood or something. I, I forgot how, what his name was, but could not find a picture of him. And even Robert McPhee, that was the only picture and the best version of it I could find. The other two were rather famous guys. I can't say the guy to the left, his name, Eustace Dincourt. You know, it sounds French, and I'm well known for not being able to pronounce uh, the French. And yet this guy also helped invent airships. Isn't that an interesting statement? Airships, land ships, and water ships, right? So he's going to help develop the military plane that is going to be like an armored ship now with wings, 
and flying. Now, we don't think of it that way, but that's how they're thinking of it. So the Navy is thinking about all of these different dimensions of how it can take what it's learned on the sea, and it's this most powerful uh, Navy in the world, how it can take its strength from the sea and put it in the air, and how it can take its strength from the sea and put it on the land. And so these guys are basically going to be the basis for the creation of the tank. The original desire of the committee, it's fascinating, when they first sit down to discuss this, they're all very intrigued and excited about this. Listen to this statement from the online tank museum. All but Winston Churchill were willing to borrow Wells's creation despite it being restricted under copyright law. So Wells, H.G. Wells, had invented something. It was in a book. And so they were like, let's just take that. This is a great idea. So they wanted to build actually what Wells had designed in 1903 in his book. In his science fiction book, they're like, let's just do that. And Winston Churchill was like, that's under copyright. And so it would be a form of theft. They're like, this is war. <laughs> Who cares? And yet Winston Churchill said, we, need to, we could build off of the ideas, but let's build our own thing. And that actually turned out to be a very wise thing because H.G. Wells' version would not have worked as well as the one uh, that they are going to develop. The invention of what was called the land ship. So that's what they know it as. You see, we know it as the tank because that was its code name. And so that's even how the soldiers are going to begin to interact with it. This is the tank. Tank is coming. What's a tank? Well, what do you think a tank is? It's you know, probably delivering water, right? So no one could know lest the Germans would find out about this, right? This needed to be a surprise. So this is what the land ship is. It's the vehicle that could sail across the land like a ship sails across the seas. I don't think most of you have ever thought about a tank being that, but that's, that's what it is. So codename tank. It was armor-plated like a ship would be. It was built on a continuous chain track tread system, and it was powered by a combustion engine. All things that were new at the time. In other words, to put armor on a car was a brand new concept because cars were brand new concepts, right? And so, you, you know, even the concept of putting armor on a person was becoming more and more novel. When World War I starts, they have cloth hats. And somewhere around the first month, uh, you know, when there was a million people that died, and a lot of them because they had cloth hats, when you have machine gun fire and artillery shrapnel flying around, having a cloth hat is not advantageous. And so the French were like, uh, we need like some kind of metal cap. And Joseph Joffre, who was over the military, was like, uh, no, don't do that. This, this battle's not gonna, you know, this war is not gonna last but another month or so. By the time they even get to the front, the war will be over. And so he's even hindering them from ordering caps. In other words, military armor, like body armor, is new in this. And so, let alone car automotive armor, you know, plane armor. I mean, the Wright brothers are just happy to get a plane up in the air, let alone try and weigh it down with a whole bunch of armor, right? And so these are all progressions that you're going to begin to see because a plane without armor is very vulnerable. But a plane with armor or a car with armor, an automotive with armor, a man with armor, huh, this is a, this is a good idea. And so it's just interesting to see things that we take for granted. It's like, of course, I mean, how come you didn't come up with that idea before? And yet, how many inventions do we have today 
that you would say the same thing. It's like, boy, why didn't we think of that before? And I mean, there's loads of things that come into our head when we think of thoughts like that. So here's actually the first tank to go to battle, right there. Uh, it has like a little steering uh, wheel at the back, which obviously is not going to last very long. Uh, and it's interesting because you see this almost like net system. The guy is fully exposed at the top. And you're going to recognize there's going to be a turret developed where a man can be inside and have his gun inside. And that's going to be developed by the French very soon after this. However, this guy's just sort of sitting on top, totally vulnerable, and he has this net, which likely is to deflect the shrapnel flying about, right? But he, anything could get through that net. I mean, a machine gun you know, bullet could probably pretty quickly get through that. And yet that's just, I mean, this is still something that is brand new, and this is their first debut edition, the uh, Mark I. So the tank's debut. September 15th, 1916, the big moment arrives. So I, I've told you guys about the Battle of the Somme. This is the battle on the first day that the British are going to lose 60,000 men. So this is a rather traumatic uh, battle overall, but it's going to last for months. And it's mostly remembered for the first day, but it has a lot of sub-battles. And in one of the sub-battles, the tanks are going to be released and Douglas Haig, who's over the British uh, military command, is a little dubious about this thing called uh, the tank or the land ship. And so he wants to experiment. So uh, it's somewhere around 50, 49, I don't remember the exact number that he is going to utilize. And he's going to set them in motion uh, in this battle uh, of the Somme. And uh, I'll, I'll give you a little background of what happens when they're first debuted. So here's uh, a military war history uh, site in, in Great Britain that says this. The early tanks were slow and unreliable, shown by the fact that of the 49 tanks deployed for the battle, only 25 actually moved forward at the start of the attack. Okay, guys, it's a disaster. Uh, now, the 25 that did move forward actually showed some promise because what a tank could do that a man couldn't is mow down uh, barbed wire. That was extremely impressive. It moved slower than the men could move. So it's like, it's, it tries to get ahead, but the men are like, uh, we have to walk next to it. I mean, how do, we, how do we take advantage of this? And they weren't necessarily being set up originally to carry men, even though that's part of the thinking that they're, they're having now. It's like, hey, we could stick men in there. But they need to move faster because, I mean, anyone that you're coming against could just outwalk it. Uh, you know, it's like, hey, you, I'm after you. And, you know, they're like walking ahead going, you know, see ya. And so everything about this is, is new and, and novel. And they're going to see that, you know, it can handle machine gun fire. It's armor plated. And the Germans don't know how to stop it even though they can outwalk it, you know? And so it's like, what? And they, so they would put them obstructions in front because it didn't have good visibility. It didn't have the ability to turn very quickly. So you could sabotage it fairly easily in the beginning. However, Douglas Haig is going to actually say, I want more of these. So even though he's dubious at the beginning and even though it's a pretty disastrous start, so I'll just put it that way, embarrassing start, Douglas Haig sees potential in this and he asks for hundreds, if not thousands, of them to begin to come into production. 
So I would like to link this to us now, because obviously this whole point is spiritual lessons from World War I, and what's the good of hearing about a tank if it doesn't have some benefit to our life? And I would like to talk about us releasing the tanks in our own life. There are things that God is doing beneath the surface in our life right now, and it's almost like the secret landships committee. That God is birthing ideas and thoughts, and he is giving conviction and desire. When, when we're here in this environment at Ellerslie, there is a propulsion, and some of it comes from just the individual walk and the individual time spent with Jesus Christ, and some of it comes from the corporate dimension that is here. There's an actual forward movement around you, and it's like, well, I'm not going to stay back here. I want to move forward too, and it creates a catalyst for growth at a very heightened level. And it's sort of like a little landships committee where you sit down and it's like, what am I here for? What, do, what, do, what, do, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? I wanna be using it fully for Jesus Christ. And you begin to dream, you begin to move forward with a vision of what God desires to do in your life and what he could do in your life. And I'm calling this on the screen, releasing the tanks in your life, the debut of fresh resolve. Very often, when we get fresh resolve, it's like, yes, I'm going to live for Jesus. Our first step out, uh, uh, you know, with our tanks, with our new way of doing this, this is the way I'm going to live from now on, is about as impressive as the debut of the tank in September of 1916, where it doesn't quite work like we thought it would. And I don't know if you've ever tasted that feeling, but a lot of people give up on the tank at that point. And even though I'm not a Douglas Haig fan, we sort of need to pull a Douglas Haig in this situation and see the potential of that forward movement and put it into mass production. All right, I see some hope here. And then, you know, you could be looking at Douglas Haig going, what hope did you see in that? I mean, most of them didn't even get off the starting line. They're still sitting there dead. You know, their battery went out or their machinery wouldn't work. They just went, you know, and fell. And it's like, how is that impressive? And yet so much of our spiritual life is similar to this. It's a fresh resolve. It's a fresh new direction. And we have a tank to debut. And in our mind, we know that that tank can overcome barbed wire. We know that that tank can go over a trench. A, ta a tank can actually go over a trench. The reason it's built long is so it can go potentially go a step out over a trench and then reach the other side and, then and actually go over, which is an extraordinary concept because how do you get over a trench with a whole bunch of men? It's like, this is cool. We could, we, we're solving all sorts of riddles here. And so you start to get the vision in your life and the authority you have in Christ of what that means, that temptation, the power of the flesh, the power of sin, that you could actually love those that hate you and they slap you. You could have a grace to smile back and to share love with them. It's like, oh, this is a powerful weapon. And you're right. However, oftentimes your initial debut of this new strength, yeah doesn't quite showcase itself at the level you were anticipating. You were expecting full maturity when you stepped into your new love position. And you're like, okay, next person that comes up to me, I'm gonna share the gospel with them and then they're gonna believe. And the next person that comes up to you, maybe you do try and share the gospel. However, it comes out mixed and backwards and what you say 
you weren't even impressed with. And you, they sort of laughed at you and mocked you. And it came out just wrong. Everything about the situation didn't seem like it worked. And now you're actually wondering if you made a big mistake after all, that maybe you shouldn't even be considering things like this. And here's what I'd say, don't be such a pushover. Don't fall to pieces so quick. God has given you a vision for something, and I want to encourage you this morning to not be deterred because the first steps forward are more challenging. First steps are always challenging. That's sort of what defines first steps. Uh, think of a baby. Okay, is it easier for a 20-year-old to take a step or a baby to take a step? You'd say, well, a 20-year-old. But why? Because the physiological balance, maturity, and muscular development is there. When you are young and you don't have the muscular development, you don't have the balance yet, you don't have the physiological maturity, it's very difficult to take your first step. And it's a risk because you could take it and fall. Mm, don't want to take that step then. But if you don't take the step, you'll never walk. And so as a result, there's a principle here that I'm sharing with you, and that's the principle of first steps. That first steps are oftentimes harder than every other step. And yet, and that's why they're fraught with a whole bunch of reasons and justifications of maybe why we shouldn't take them. Maybe we shouldn't debut the tank because maybe it will be a flop. And so maybe we should just put it back, you know, into the cupboard and say, you know, nothing to see here. We didn't try and invent something to solve this riddle. You see, there's a lot of people that are afraid of taking that first step forward or that initial movement in a new direction because they're afraid of failure. When in actuality, the very essence of success in any project is the willingness to have 25 of your tanks not even get going. That's what makes the tank the tank. The tank is going to come into its position in history, not because it started with a blaze of glory, but that it had something that was true. And it would work if it was given time and if it could be cultivated in a greater way. So there's a tank uh, uh, that didn't do so well uh, in its opening day. It's sort of uh, stuck there. And... You know, that's sort of the way we feel. That looks a little like our life uh, at times, where it's just like, so this is Christianity. So this is your big thing that you went off to Ellerslie and, and came away with. It's like, wow. Just want to say, very impressed. You see, this is what we're afraid of. We're afraid of debuting this newness and having that happen. And yet what I want you to do is not concern yourself with that. I want you to recognize that your future is like the future of the tank. You are being built into one tough cookie that can handle machine gun fire, that can plow over barbed wire, that can go over enemy trenches. You actually have been given a grace to overcome and to be an unstoppable force in this generation. But sometimes to become that unstoppable force, you need to sort of exercise those first movements which feel very stoppable and feel very vulnerable to... Uh, trenches and barbed wire and just new things called combustion engines and petrol and chain traction that doesn't seem to move in this situation. But the idea is right. So the important principle to know, first steps in the spiritual life are similar to first steps 
in the physical life. As a newborn or as a infant in our spiritual steps, we are learning and gaining a physiological balance. We have something called a toddle. That's what is, it, it, ironically to all of us, when you see a little child toddling, you think it's cute. However, when you see your own soul toddling, you do not see it as cute. And yet, how do you know that God doesn't see it as cute? I mean, whether or not we'd want to say cute, maybe precious would be a better word, because some of us are like, I don't know that I really want to just be cute with my toddle. And yet, that's the way I'm going to say it is right now, is I'm going to say that God knows how first steps work. And he is a God who is far greater in his mercy than he is in trying to just find the correction and the problem in you. He sees what is happening. He sees the potential of the tank, and he is so excited that you're releasing that tank on September 15th of 1916. And he is just thrilled. And you could come back to God and say, but God, it failed. He's like, I wouldn't call that failure. I see a lot of success there. First off, you did it. You pressed forward, and you have something very, very special there. And what I want you to do is I want, to, I want you to put that into mass production. We just want to fix a few things, all right? Because I'm not intending that, you know, uh, that many of, uh, you know, what, 24 out of 49 tanks are not going to even go anywhere. My desire is a little higher percentage. Let's change some things. Let's fix a few things. Let's tighten a few screws. But I want you to put this into mass production. We're moving this tank idea forward. You see, God is very gracious just the way a parent is gracious when their child is learning to walk. In fact, a parent gets very excited when their child is willing to try. And they stand up on something, and, they're leaning, and then you see them go, Kapoof. and the parents are like, oh, get out the camera. And they get out the camera, and they're catching every moment. And the child took one, maybe two steps, and then fell. And guess what? The parents send it all over the place. All the relatives get this little clip, this little video clip, and they're bragging about it. Well, what's there to brag about? Could you imagine being a, you know, a 24-year-old excellent walker, and you get this little clip of a toddler, like, Poof, I could beat that any day. <laughs> Why do we esteem a child's first steps? Because we know it's a beginning, and we know that a first step means a second attempt, and it means a third and that child will become an excellent walker if they continue. And the same thing is true in our spiritual life. However, in the spiritual life, the difference between our physiological, physical life and our spiritual life is oftentimes when we fumble, when we fall in our spiritual life, we don't get back up. We are very easy to keep down because it's territory that the enemy is against. Usually, I don't know if the devil is against kids walking. You know, if you were to think about it, I'm sure he doesn't, you know, cheer. I'm sure he's not excited when he gets the video on his, his phone. He probably immediately deletes it. It's like, Ugh. <laughs> However, I don't know that that's his great agenda is to keep, you know, humanity from walking physically. But I do know that his agenda is to keep us from walking spiritually. And so as a result, in that dimension, when we fall, he jumps on top of us, and he whispers condemnation in our ears, saying, you, you don't even get up. Don't even try. If you're going to fall like this, God doesn't want you. He wants someone who could walk perfectly, and that's not you. You know, your tank idea stinks. 
And so as a result, he jumps on that, hounds us with condemnation, and many of us stay in that position. And even if we crawl from that point, it's a massive accomplishment. However, what I want to exhort your soul to do today is get back up and keep going. But what, but what if I fall again? Then you get back up and you keep going. Well, what if, I, what if I fall twice? Then you get back up and you keep going. Your Father has fresh mercy for you every single morning. That is one of the greatest truths in the kingdom of heaven. So the strategy of first steps. So here's the desire. God, of course, wants you to start out everything you do strong. Well, that's always the best way to start, right? And yet, listen to this. Some of us are not starting strong. In fact, that's the principle of first steps. Very few of us in our very first steps are they good first steps. That doesn't mean that the first steps tomorrow can't be better. And that doesn't mean even the day after that that your first steps couldn't be even better because you know that every day we have first steps? And so what I want you to do is even though your first first steps weren't that impressive and 25 of your tanks didn't even get moving, don't give up, but go again. And what you'll find is that you can refine and improve on your first steps. So listen, strategy of first steps. Of course you want to start strong. Everything you do, I want you to have a vision of starting strong. But if you don't start strong today, then start strong tomorrow. You have another opportunity for first steps tomorrow. The moment you wake up, how are you going to live tomorrow? Start it. Start it well. And pretty soon you'll have 49 tanks that rev up their engine and get that chain traction going and start moving a little faster. And now, no, it's not just 49 tanks, it's 4,900 tanks. And then it's not just 4,900 tanks, it's newly deployed, like special edition tanks. And there's like 40,000 of them. In other words, this is the growth of the Christian soldier. However, you can't allow the devil to keep you down. Lamentations 3, 21 through 23. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I repeat that scripture so much in my soul because I have an attendant to my life that sees all my flaws. It's called the accuser of the brethren. And it is not God. It's a very important distinguishing factor that you distinguish that this voice is not God. It is the enemy. And he wants to find flaw. He doesn't show me the shed blood of Jesus. He shows me my life and its inadequacy and where it hasn't yet developed. It shows me the 25 tanks that are still sitting there. It's like, what's this? And I see it too, and I'm hard on myself. Remember, I'm German, and everything needs to be perfect, and it's not. And that voice can sabotage my spiritual life if I listen to it. But there's another voice. And the voice of mercy isn't just cheering on my 25 tanks that didn't move. It's like, oh, good job, Eric on my 25 tanks that didn't move. No, but he does see the 24 that did. And he's constantly encouraging and strengthening. 
saying, Eric, I'm proud of you. Let's move forward today. And let's work on those 25 tanks. Let's get these guys up and rolling because this is going to be powerful. You see, his mercy is new. He doesn't major on the flaws in my life. He addresses the flaws with his mercy and his grace and his shed blood. But he's a God that doesn't just cover over flaw. He's a God that actually repairs and he strengthens. His mercy being new every morning gives me hope because I don't need to just have 25 tanks that don't run every day. But he has given me mercy every day, and that mercy gives me hope that he's not going to judge me because of my 25 tanks that didn't move, but he's going to help me repair them. So the next day, I could even have 49 tanks in motion. And that's where you start to get excited as the believer. His mercies are new every morning. This I call to mind, and therefore I hope the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Firsts. God seems to be very interested in firsts. I don't know if you've ever noticed this in Scripture, but he's always saying, hey, hey, what's that? Well, that's the first of my crop. Okay, that's mine. Uh, well, what's that? Well, that's the first, my firstborn child. Oh, I want that. The firstborn of any womb and the first fruits of any crop, God says, those are mine. Now, I don't want you to overlook that. That is actually a very important principle in Scripture. It's the principle of firsts. I'll just give you a few scriptures. There's loads of them. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. Exodus 13, 2, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. And so what you see is God is staking claim to a certain territory, and that is the firstborn, the first fruits. Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel, and the livestock of the Levites instead of their livestock. The Levites shall be mine, I am the Lord. It's interesting how it progresses. Because God is going to stake claim to all the firstborn, and we could say the firstborn male. And that's why when you see the judgment on, uh, in the book of Exodus on uh, Egypt, and you're going to see that the firstborn is going to be judged. So much of this is a, a parallel and, and, and critical for us to understand even in our life spiritually. But who is going to tend to the altar? Who is going to tend to the ministry of the house of God? It's going to be the Levites. And so God is going to say, okay, the, the firstborn are mine, but instead of the firstborn, I'm taking the Levites now. So the first fruits end up transferring into being a people. And this people group are the ones that tend to the house of God. You do know that you are in that position in the new covenant relationship, and you are the house, and you are the one called to tend to it. And technically, I know this sounds strange, you are the first fruits of a spiritual awakening in your life. That God is bringing about a work and there is a spiritual womb that is giving rise to your new life. And you are the one that God says, mine. And so we actually are his. We are his possession. So first movements, one of the things we, we can recognize is anything that's a first, God seems to say, that's mine. That's That's mine. I'm going to call this consecrating the start. When you first inaugurate a movement, 
Now, I'm going to, if, if you hang around Ellerslie and you hang around Eric, you're going to have this come up. At least every series, you need to have it come up once. And that is the start of a day. Because the start of a day, to me, is a first fruits. It is that which opens up the day. And how we handle that first is what sets the pattern for our strength in our tank brigade. In other words, how we are going to bring offensive strength to our day. And so I'm going to read you a story, and it's the first movements forward with the temple of God. So Solomon is going to build the temple. He is going to create a place in which his God can dwell among men. And this is a parallel with us. So just imagine that you're waking up in the morning, and you are, in a sense, at this very situation where the temple of God has been constructed, and you're doing a new beginning. This is the, the beginning of the temple of God. When it is finished in its construction, this is what happens. This is a great, uh, great passage. So if you see the, the passage, Second Chronicles, it's like chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. I'm going to take out little pieces just to, because this is a, there's a lot going on here. So all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and all the furnishings. And he put them in the treasuries of the house of God. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel in Jerusalem, they might, they, that they might bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord up from the city of David, which is Zion. So what is the first thing they want? They want the ark of covenant now to come in. So when you wake up in the morning and your feet hit the floor, these are your first movements. And what I want you to do is pull a Solomon. I want you to think this way. He is going to say, okay, we need the Ark of Covenant. And that's exactly what you need. You need the power of God in you. You can't do this in your own strength. What is this house for? This house is his dwelling place. Make that clear when you first are waking up. And you need the presence of God. It's symbolic of the Holy Spirit, symbolic of the presence of the indwelling Christ, it's symbolic of the power of God. There's a lot of reasons you're going to want that. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. That the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Not a bad way to start out your day. I'm just going to encourage you in that. In other words, what you see is they are literally lifting up their voice and they're declaring something. What is that something? He is good. His mercy endures forever. You know, one of the things I oftentimes say when I first get up is your mercies are new every morning. Well, I could say that instead. That is a perfectly great statement as well. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. His mercy is right now, is today, is fresh. That hesed, as, as Nathan taught you guys on hesed, yeah. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. So the first thing he's going to do is spread out his hands and pray. And so if I've ever told you my morning wake-up routine, which has been refined over years, and I have thought through my, my morning routine and how I first engage the day as if it is one of these chief sculpture projects that I'm working on. In other words, like, oh, I need to fix that. Okay, this could be better. 
I mean, I, I want, I take my first movements very seriously. And I say, this is God's territory, and if I give it to God, I know the rest of my day has strength. If I claim it for myself, it seems to undermine the rest of my day. I don't want to just wake up in a fog. What's interesting is when you first wake up, it's the hardest time. It's like a newborn baby learning to walk. It's the hardest time to take a good step. And so when we're first becoming believers, it's very normal for us to fumble around and not step well. But that doesn't mean you can't step better tomorrow. And that doesn't mean you can't step better the day after that. And that doesn't mean you couldn't get out of bed and actually totally transform the way you get up in the morning the day after that. In other words, it's a constant refinement of this beginning point in your day. Okay, so say you didn't start very well. Well, that doesn't mean you can't finish well. And that doesn't mean you can't start better tomorrow. You see, every day has newness to it. It has a fresh batch of mercy that is there for you that you can take hold of and utilize. So part of my strategy is that when I wake up, I want to cheer on the day. I used to grumble. That was like the first way I would greet the day was like, oh boy. And it was always that alarm clock. If you guys remember that one old sound. Oh, it's just an obnoxious sound. Right? And so I would greet my day with a grumble and a groan and that set a tempo to my day. That I then had to overcome that obstacle that I set up right in front of me in the day, which is like, oh, this is going to be a tough one. Why? Well, because it was hard to wake up. Instead of waking up with triumph. And so my fist always does this. And I tell you what, every morning I think about it. And every morning I'm like, I have a tough time just doing this. But sometimes it's like right about here. If you see me get out of bed, I, I go like this. My arm even feels heavy. It's like everything in your slumberous state sort of wants to argue against your first step, just like a baby's physiology wants to argue against a solid gait, a solid movement. And as you grow up or get further into the day, if you will, your gait can be strong. But how impressive is it when someone can get out of day with triumph? Jesus, this is your day, and I will rejoice in it. You have made it. And Lord... I am in you. You are in me. I share in your death, your burial, your resurrection. I am seated with you in heavenly places. Your spirit resides in me, and I want to live this day for you. That's a whole different ballgame now. When you start by celebrating the day, when you start by recognizing this is his day and he has a purpose for it, when you start the day by recognizing that he has work set before you for you to walk in, whoa! That's called expectancy. That's a movement forward that gets the other 25 tanks, their engines revved up. You've got yourself a tank army now. Nothing to laugh at. The Germans might snicker at first, but watch out world. We've got ourselves a tank. Okay, we're still going in this story, by the way. Did I finish reading that one? No, I didn't. So Solomon spreads out his hands, and when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. That's a good way to start your day. Pray and have a little fire come down. It's like, yeah, you know, Eric, I'd like to, you know, move in at a whole nother level with some fire inside of you. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. 
When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, listen to what they say now, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. It might be even a better wake-up line than even my, uh, you know, his mercies are new every morning. I don't know, maybe a combo package of the two might be just like unstoppable. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. All right, so just a principle. As you wake up and as you get your morning going, this new beginning, this fresh start, it doesn't matter how you started yesterday, but you have the opportunity to start anew. And you have something very special. It's called the tank. And God's given you a vision for the power of this instrument. This is a Christian life. And you've been given weapons of warfare that are mighty. To tearing down barbed wire. To going over uh, trenches. To being able to repel all the machine gun fire of the enemy. You've been given armor plating to head into no man's land, and take out the enemy. And yes, I recognize your first steps forward yesterday weren't that impressive. However, your commander-in-chief saw something in it that he's very proud of, and he'd like to see more of that. Are you sure you still want this? Are you st- are you, don't you just want to throw this out? Bad experiment. Nope. I want more of it. Let's put this into mass production. God sees that you desire more. You, you're looking at his word and you're seeing a strength that you crave and you desire in your life practically. And just because practically you felt more like a fumbler and a bumbler than a triumphant Christian does not mean that you're not headed in the right direction. Keep going. Keep moving in that direction. Keep refining your start. And the finishing touches to this is what we could call sacrifice. But God's not looking for goats, bulls, rams, and lambs. He's looking for you. And so when you start out your day, there's nothing quite like acknowledging the truth of the gospel. That you are in Christ. You're in his death. Old man, dead. Crucified with him. Buried. But there's a new creature in Christ that's been resurrected. And that newness of life is now seated in heavenly places in Christ. And therefore, if all things are under our Christ's feet, that's where we sit. And when we pray, we pray in that position with all things beneath Christ's feet. And we pray in the name of Jesus, and we live in the name of Jesus. And what is the reasonable next step that flows out of that? We give him our life. We are a living sacrifice holy and pleasing unto him. Here you go, Lord. Yeah, I know Solomon's sacrifice was pretty impressive, 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. I don't have that, but I have me. And I set me on the altar before you. And I say, Lord, this is how I want to start my day. You come down and devour this with fire. Eat it up on your altar. Set me aflame for you. And I tell you what, the enemy blanches, turns white as a sheet when you wake up 
and start doing that. When you take this one life every day at a time and you say, all right, we have fresh mercy. Our Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. We got a lot of good stuff going for us. Plus, we've been given armor plating. Look at this thing that he's built known as the church. I know it doesn't look that impressive in its first debut, but let's move forward and actually demonstrate what this can do in battle. Father, we want this. We want that clear understanding that our missteps do not translate into us being kicked out of your promise and your inheritance. But Lord, you are desirous to give us mercy and to lift us back up and to keep us going in that direction. Lord, the enemy is a liar. And I pray that his voice would be silenced and that there would be an increase of understanding in the mercy and the grace of God. And that we would progress, that we would have our bolts tightened, that our starting package in each day would actually grow sharper and sharper. And that we would take advantage of this opportunity we have to live life on this earth for you, Lord Jesus. We love you and we trust you and we submit to you, Lord. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.